This is Lex Kibernetica, the cyber law podcast by the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Lex Kibernetica. While algorithms are often considered unbiased, or at least less biased than humans, they are in truth as biased as the data sets that they were trained on and as they were programmed to be by design or oversight. Algorithms are utilized by managers to choose employees, judges to give verdicts, and much more. Can we trust their decisions, and do we have a right for a human decision-maker in the loop? This is the subject of this episode of Lex Kibernetica, and here's our first guest. My name is Helmut Aust. I'm a professor of public law and international law at Freie Universität Berlin, where I teach international law and constitutional law. And uh, part of my research uh, is also looking at the emergence of uh, new technologies, especially artificial intelligence, autonomous decision-making processes, and how this new development is impacting on categories and concepts of human rights law. You wrote that digital technology is transforming what it means to be a subject. Can you elaborate on that? I think the fundamental challenge, which is created by by autonomous decision-making processes and the like, is that it's changing how um, decisions of the state, uh, decisions of organs of the state, but also maybe even decisions in the in relationships between private actors um, can be rationalized, how they can be explained. And if we conceive of the possibility of autonomous decision-making processes, I think we will move towards um, a situation in, in which the, the rationale for the taking of certain decisions can no longer be explained. And I think this changes fundamentally um, the concepts of human agency, which are, which are central to the field of human rights law. On a practical level, it will also make, make it more possible and more, more, more difficult to, to, to rationalize why certain conduct was, was undertaken. It will then make it more difficult to also seek judicial review of these actions. And, and I think this is the most fundamental challenge that um, the, the rise of these new technologies pose for human rights law. So let's take a more benign example of AI being used as a tool to decide which job seekers will be employed in a certain company. What is the problem with basing such a decision on big data and, and uh, AI? But I think the problem uh, is in a way the same as the promise of the use of such systems as, um, I mean, on the one hand, one could imagine that if hiring decisions, for instance, are taken by by, by a system completely autonomously through the use of an algorithm, then certain biases that humans might have with respect to certain candidates are eliminated. Um, so it might be that for most cases, the use of such technologies might indeed be beneficial. But on the other hand, there's already now a vast literature which also goes into automation biases which develop in self-learning machines. So these <clears throat> algorithms may reproduce um, stereotypes or biases that humans have, which have also produced and, and, and programmed these algorithms. Um, and then the decision is imbued with the, with the extra rationality of having been taken by the super smart algorithm, which makes it even more difficult to challenge um, such a decision. Uh, in my own field, in, in public international law, we have um, a big debate on, on the use of autonomous decision-making processes in warfare, for instance. Um, and um, there is a standard slogan which, uh, which, which says it is absolutely necessary to keep the human in the loop when there are decisions about the taking of life. Um, and now this 
this can mean different things. And what many states, for instance, say in this context is that they point out there needs to be meaningful human control over the individual targeting decision so that it's ensured that not an algorithm is taking the, the eventual decision of uh, taking someone's life. But in the speed of a battlefield situation, I think um, it can be very difficult if you are the human who is supposed to stay um, to, to stay in the loop and to exercise meaningful human control to assert your authority, your independence vis-a-vis -vis an algorithm which suggests a certain course of action. Um, so not in all situations will it be possible to, to really fill this category of meaningful human control with something which is indeed meaningful and which is not just replicating the decision of the supposedly smarter, more neutral, more objective, um, less biased algorithm. A lot of times when people are in the loop and make decisions, they, they base them on intuition, which cannot be explained and is not uh, scientific. A machine, in a sense, a, a computer, uh, uh, an artificial intelligence, at least takes into account the data and the facts. Uh, why should we trust humans uh, who are fallible and not a machine uh, which, which might make a better decision? I think there are at least two issues here. So, so the, the first one is the premise that, um, as you just nicely put in your question, humans are fallible and the machine may not be fallible. So, but that's that's a certain statement which which can be true, but need not necessarily be true. So. Um, we don't know whether the machine will always be unfallible and especially in, in, in situations where there's a very strong ethical or legal conflict between two competing legal values and a decision needs to be made which can only realize one side of the equation. Um, I think it's very difficult to say that there is only the one right decision which, which can be taken. So I think Statistically, maybe the use of uh, algorithms uh, and self-learning machines, autonomous decision-making processes might be beneficial for the majority of cases, but I would say there is still an uneasiness about a residue of cases where, um, where at least I would say many people hesitate whether these tough calls should be outsourced to, to the machine. Now, the other problem I see here is that we are talking pretty much about a moving target and in many of the debates about what, for instance, meaningful human control over the exercise of an algorithm means, um, have as a point of reference some future technological development which uh, maybe some of us can more or less clearly imagine but I cannot. So I, I have the sense that we are discussing in many instances some scenarios which uh, may still strike us more or less as emanations of science fiction and we still do not know how technology um, will evolve and how smart algorithms and self-learning devices may grow and whether they may outsmart us and i think as always with new technologies there are at least two ways how to how to deal with that problem. One can be, uh, one can be optimistic and embrace uh, the potential for future technological development and say everything will sort itself out. Or one can be more skeptical and see um, the potential dangers for uh, the existing legal framework and so on and so forth. My suspicion is that uh, 
in the United States, uh, maybe also in Israel, one tends to err more on the side of optimism, whereas here in Europe we are probably more inclined to, to look to the potential negative deficits, which may also explain the technological um, divide which is which is growing between uh, Europeans and on this question and North Americans or also Israelis. Where do you see the biggest uh, threat to human rights in taking humans out of the loop? Beyond the privacy question, I think the right to life is the is the ultimate test case where um, where difficult decisions will have to be made whether we will accept it from a human rights perspective, also from an international humanitarian law perspective, that decisions over life and death are ultimately taken by machines. Um, there's a big debate about lethal autonomous weapon system laws uh, and, and the best strategy to regulate uh, these devices. And so far, states are hedging their bets. Uh, some states obviously will want to develop such devices and have also the capabilities to do that. Others are more skeptical. Others don't don't express a, um, a clear position on that at all. From what you read and what you uh, and conversations that you have with uh, human rights activists and uh, scholars, do you feel that they see this danger? Um, the same way you do, or, or do they see it at all? I think there's a growing awareness that there is a threat, um, but also that it's it's too easy to just point towards the threat and don't uh, not to embrace also the positive sides of technological development because I think it would be as dangerous to fall into the trap of just uh, calling for prohibitions of this and that uh, for for the for the sake of protecting human rights, as there is also obviously a great potential that. Um, That, that artificial intelligence and self-learning devices can play for the fulfillment of human rights. I think it's a double-edged sword, uh, as it is the case with most technological innovations. It's very rare that a technological innovation is just pure and simply evil and needs to be prohibited. Um, but uh, I think we need a societal discourse about the opportunities um, and the risks. And uh, this is beginning to unfold. And uh, I also see that uh, actors from civil society, from NGOs are, are, are part of that debate. And that's a good sign. Do you foresee that in the uh, future, maybe the very far future, systems like that will be uh, intelligent enough, smart enough to make the right decisions anyway? Or do you think that uh, we will uh, forever need a, a human in the loop? I have no no clear prediction on that. I mean, I would I would hope that uh, there will remain a space for, for humans in the loop and that we will not be turned into um, some organisms which just uh, loiter around while the important decisions are taken by machines. So um, I hope that humanity will be smart enough to preserve um, space for, for the human factor. Helmut Aust, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. Can we trust decisions made by machines? The real question is, can machine-governed systems even be labeled a public system, which is open to scrutiny? We'll talk about that with our next guest. I'm Alon Harel. I'm a professor of law at the Hebrew University and a member of the Center of Rationality. And I spend a year now at the Wissenschaft Kollegen, which is an advanced study center in Berlin. What does a public system mean uh, as opposed to a private decision-making system? I think, theoretically, the idea of the public system is a system that represents us all, that speaks in our name that we can uh, regard it as representing us, as representing our views or our essence. So when we speak about the public, we speak about a system that 
treats each and every one of us equally, takes into account our needs and, and interests and uh, point of view or perspective, as opposed to private. In the private sphere, we are entitled to promote our interests directly, uh, and the private system uh, is one in which we are entitled to be egoist, we are entitled to look at the world from our own perspective rather than from the perspective of others. So like a, a public system is when uh, the state or the society around you decides how you will be treated in a different aspect, while a private uh, system could be like your family uh, deciding how to uh, celebrate your birthday. The lines of demarcations are not always that clear, um, especially in these days when you have large corporations there that actually you're bound to use them. Um, and then the question of the bound, or for instance, uh, the conditions for using the internet or something like this. And, and in those cases, the boundaries between public and private are not always that clear. I think there is a difference between what the law regards as public and what I think in terms of our legal theory should regard as private. And of course, nowadays, the boundaries are not that clear in the sense that there are certain public duties that private entities have. For instance, they cannot discriminate on the basis of race. This was considered by some as an interference in our private kind of world, in our private affairs. Why should I, as a business, um, not discriminate if I want to? Uh, question that is being asked. And that means that certain public values penetrate the private uh, sphere. But still, there is a much of a difference in the sense that in the private sphere, the governing uh, value is autonomy. I'm entitled to do what I want within the private sphere. Private sphere protects me from interference by others. But in the public uh, sphere, the governing ideal is a governing ideal of uh, equality. Uh, we should all be treated equally. Our perspective should be considered equally um, and so on. You were talking about private uh, companies and there is private ownership of technologies that uh, are used to make decisions public decisions about us. Uh, yeah, some companies develop uh, databases uh, that later on are being bought by the government and being used by the government. For instance, the technology for recognizing faces. Um, and those are being used also for purposes that may be problematic uh, from the perspective of human rights. For instance, um, when you are being photographed in a public sphere, in a street, or so on, so on. And later on, uh, this is being used uh, to identify you, to follow you, that you don't want uh, that they would be known, and so on. And what is the problem with uh, having those uh, uh, technologies privately owned as opposed to um, made by government? The problem uh, is that at times uh, the companies uh, have certain rights over these uh, machines, over these technologies, which means that they are not uh, transparent. They are not ones that uh, can, can be used later on. For instance, uh, let's take technology that helps you to identify uh, profiles of individuals who committed crimes. Yeah? And that raises suspicions, and then there is a process of uh, investigation, identification, and they use statistical tools to do this. You are being investigated uh, on the basis of uh, data or information or uh, 
technology that you uh, have no right to to inspect or to understand how it works because private company that sells its technology to the government will not uh, show its source code for example to the government or to uh, you as a person who was uh, subjected to uh, a test by that uh, system and that means that you cannot understand or uh, verify that the decision the machine or the software made are correct yeah that's true and on the top of it I would say another thing that has to do with the use of technology in general rather in, in, in this type of decisions my concern uh, and that's independently of whether it was done by a private or a public body uh, my concern is also that uh, once you have this technology you are typically bound into the system that cost typically cost a lot of money and so on, so on and much it was invested in it And it is unlikely to be changed and the criteria are going to be fixed forever and ever as a, as a practical as a pragmatic matter um, because it's easy to use this technology once it's there it's cheap to uh, use this technology and to understand and get a good feedback uh, is often uh, unlikely to happen uh, so this system may uh, hook you to certain criteria that that are not dynamics that do not change with circumstances and and uh, so that's also a concern that I have with this technology yeah, but this problem uh, uh, exists even if we do see the source code because we can't always understand what the software does or what algorithms and yeah. artificial intelligence does yeah I agree okay with respect to this it doesn't matter whether the technology is used by the government is transparent or not but Uh, I guess if it's transparent there may be people who will be investigate its um, efficacy and whether it balances properly between human rights and uh, of course if it's secret it's even more difficult to do another concern you raise uh, is that there is a problem with a criminal justice system that is geared towards prediction and prevention uh, beforehand rather than reaction and punishment afterhand and Many people would say that it is better to prevent a crime than to punish a crime that's already been done. Yeah, I mean, of course, it's typically it's better to prevent a crime than, than to punish uh, in a respect. But there are problems in our ability to prevent crimes. There are many problems. I'll give you just an example. Think about civil disobedience. Uh, Rosa Parks uh, violated the law. She sat in a seat... It was reserved to whites. Only we, uh, I think many people, including myself, uh, admire it, think it was a very important move in, uh, in, in protesting against unjust laws. Think if we could prevent this crime in advance. Think how it would affect the politics in the United States. So sometimes things that are identified as crimes are really quite valuable. <laughs> the society that's the first thing I mean of course this does not apply to all crimes but there is a fear that the legal system uh, that is based on the idea that we select or choose to do bad things there is a risk that this uh, system will turn into a system that basically loses this element of voluntariness and uh, loses this element that we we select and we good and the bad and so on and so on. It will lose its moralizing, uh, educational, whatever effects. And this may be of concern. The legal system uh, symbolizes uh, 
signifies uh, what is good and what is bad and so on and so on. And if we prevent things in advance, um, we lose the, uh, the tool of criminal law as a means of discussing moral issues, deliberating about them, asking questions of how how bad is this act as opposed to this act? Is this act bad or not? Uh, it's time is the, the, the uh, legal system's advancement and evolution, in a sense. Yeah, that's also true. Yeah. Once you prevent this crime, let me think about, I, I mean, uh, to give you an example, historically, this is not that novel. Historically, um, there was uh, the, the uh, famous uh, attempt to cure homosexuals instead of punishing them. Huh? Uh, we look at it in retrospect and think this is horrible. It was also done by brutal ways. Um, this is also a method of prevention. Now, let's assume that this was successful. This would impoverish, in some ways, our discussions about sexual practices, what sexual practices are appropriate, what are not appropriate, and so on. So, on. so uh, I think that, uh, to some extent, uh, uh, losing this aspect of criminal law will impoverish our society. Professor Alon Hanel, thank you very much. Algorithms are used to help judges, uh, help uh, prosecutors, help uh, the investigation, help bringing justice to people. But that is not without problems. And we're going to talk about that with our next interviewee. My name is Dafna Dror. I'm a visiting scholar at the Federman Cybersecurity Research Center at the Hebrew University. So our research examines the legal and ethical considerations of algorithmization in judicial decision-making. And this is actually part of a wider research that we are doing um, in the Federman Center regarding digital rights, uh, which examines whether there is a need uh, and justification to develop specific human rights that are designated to cyber. Uh, rights that have no equivalency in the offline world. And one of those rights is a right to a human decision maker, which uh, raises uh, when we are talking about uh, judicial proceedings. Let's start with how algorithms benefit the court system, the, the reason that they're even used there. Uh, first of all, of course, it can improve efficiency and enhance the case speed proceeding. And this can also result in actually enhancing uh, the accessibility of the public to the court system. Because when we are talking about civil proceeding, today many people avoid approaching to court because they know how long this process is going to take and how costly it will be. In addition, algorithms can help to overwrite limitations that are inherent to human decision-making, as they said. And for example, there are many studies that show today that human decision-making is influenced by extraneous factors um, and not judicial factors, such as a reliance on emotions and intuitions uh, and even, even judicial rulings that are influenced by mental resources. However, this issue is also highly controversial. Um, for example, there are many claims that risk assessment softwares uh, that were deployed in um, the court system in the U.S. and examine recidivism are infected with systematic bias. There was a case in Florida, and when they examined it, uh, it showed that African-Americans are almost twice as likely as whites to be labeled as higher risk, but in reality, they did not actually reoffend, And the program made the opposite mistake among the white population. 
they are much more likely than blacks to be labeled lower risk, but they went on to commit other crimes. And one of the reasons for that is that the factors that were embedded in the program, such as parental criminality, community disorganization, and the like, and naturally in light of a history of racial bias in law enforcement and in allocation of resources, the scores were actually biased to begin with. And that creates an unfair trial. True. So this poses a risk to the right to fair trial. And another issue is that it's really hard to detect biases in this kind of system because of the lack of transparency. When a judge makes a decision, um, they're supposed to uh, give uh, an explanation for why they decided what they did, and I can appeal that decision. But the algorithm doesn't give a reason. It just gives out the result. True, but it's more than that. Because even if the decision maker's explanation of the judgment would be provided to the litigants and to the public, because of the propriety nature of the system and the difficulty to understand the technical mechanism and the lack of information on the data itself, the data that is used in the system, the process of the judicial making still stays behind curtain. It is a black box, which is the exact opposite of uh, transparent. Exactly. And importantly, the algorithm is not just opaque to the people that are affected by it, but also to the human decision makers who may be working with the algorithmic tools, the judges that are assisted with, uh, with these programs, it is essential for them to, to, to understand what data sets the algorithms rely on when basing their recommendations and the legal analysis that it contributes to. And these kind of allegations were raised in a Supreme Court case in Wisconsin, in the United States, the Loomis case. Um, and there, uh, the Supreme Court said that these risk assessment programs are, um, are constitutional because it is not supposed to replace uh, the human discretion of the judge, but it is only a tool to assist the judge in predicting recidivism. But here, it still casts a serious doubt whether judge or, or any human matter after he knows that a very specific program uh, that was examined several times and is supposed to be very accurate uh, gives a specific result and still he or she would say, while I hear this result, I choose not to accept it. Maybe a good example is when one of us is using a Waze when we're driving. I'm not sure that there are many times when we are going to say, I hear the Waze suggestion, but still I choose to take another path. Let's get started. Drive safe. In zero kilometers, continue straight. Police reported ahead. Because we erroneously look at algorithms as being unbiased and always correct and, and smarter than us. Yes, we think it is more accurate. It was examined. It was found as consistent and uh, in a clear mechanism. And so we tend to trust it. The question is uh, whether, whether the public could trust the court and uh, whether or not it would uh, impair the court legitimacy while the person that comes to the court um, does not really know what stands behind this algorithm 
and what data it consists. So it's not enough that we have to understand how judges think. Now we have to understand how machines think. Uh, <laughs> a person has to know that when he comes before the court, he receives his day in court, meaning that he would get the sense and uh, will have the ability to actually affect his or her judicial proceeding. That when he talks before a judge, the judge would really listen to him. But isn't that the problem the algorithms were supposed to solve in the first place? The fact that humans are easily manipulated and algorithms are not? It might be true, but we also need to consider whether a person should have a right uh, to, to prove that he is different than what the algorithm expected for him. <laughs> that we're more complicated than how uh, computers categorize us. Exactly. In the research, we also suggest to consider a core question, and that is whether we as humans want to and can be judged by non-humans. Is that a philosophical question? It is, but it also touches the legal principle established in common law, and that is uh, the right to trial by a jury of one's peers. For example, if there is a jury that represents persons that consistently excludes some sections of society, this can be deemed unconstitutional. And it raises a question whether the machine, the algorithm, can be regarded as one's contemporary. This goes perhaps to the question of the biased algorithm, and that is, can we really ensure that automated jury or automated judge reflect a diverse collection of different populations in society, or would it completely exclude the voice and the democratic influence of certain populations? in particular minorities. Why is it particular to minorities? Because unfortunately, reality shows today that uh, the designers of uh, algorithms and these kind of programs does not reflect a diverse collection and different populations uh, of society, but are mainly designed by certain groups that does not include uh, minorities. Dr. Daphne Dor, thank you very much. Thank you. This was Lex Kibernetica. Lex Kibernetica. More episodes are available at the Hebrew University Cybersecurity Research Center site at csrcl.huji.ac.il.